0: This is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Leschetizky as I Knew Him, written by Ethel Newcomb and published in 1921. By D. Appleton and Company. Chapter 8 The first lesson with the Great Master, after weeks or months of preliminary study, was an event for the preparatory teacher as well as for the pupil. It was customary to accompany pupils to the first few lessons as a convenience to an arrangement from which the teacher often derived valuable hints for the preparation of later pupils, as well as perhaps a new direction for the future studies of the one already prepared. Sometimes Leschetizky inquired why the preparation had taken so long. On the other hand, he was apt to be skeptical about people who gained access to him very quickly. He judged his pupils from many standpoints, and so one never knew what the outcome might be. A lesson might be long or short, and every one was in reality more or less a reflection of the moment, according to the impression made upon him by the pupil. He liked to see good feeling existing between preparatory teacher and pupil, On one occasion he laughed outright on seeing his assistant and pupil come in together. Really? he exclaimed. You look like two schoolchildren, but that is not a bad sign. So keen was his interest and curiosity in his new pupil that he would often go to the window to watch him come down the street. The pupil's manner of entering the room would be noted and everything that had been observed or heard of him was taken into consideration. Good nature and self-possession on the part of the pupil acted as a stimulant to Leschetizky in the lessons, as also courage in asking intelligent questions. Blunders were often cheerfully overlooked if the personality of the pupil was at all agreeable to the master, but While the pupil's personality was of great interest and importance to him, the absolute correctness of every musical as well as technical detail was the supreme test in the first lesson. Every chord had to be understood so well that its arpeggio could be played fluently without hesitation. Moreover, the musical structure of the piece had to be so perfectly understood as well as visualized that one could begin at any bar or on any note. Until a few technical studies and two or three pieces were mastered in these respects, it was not possible to follow him freely in the detailed study of tone and rhythm, which was so vital a part of his marvellous teaching. The preparatory course completed, it might be a matter of weeks or years, it was possible for an assistant teacher to broach the question of a lesson with Leshetitsky on behalf of the pupil. He might ask the pupil to play for him the fiftieth bar, for example. This was a simple matter if one understood the form and structure of the piece, which so many did not, and much simpler than it seemed if one could inwardly sing through the melody from a note near one of the points of what he called orientierung, which he held that every player should have established for himself and visualized in the beginning as one visualizes the important features in a landscape. He liked to have a pupil prove to him that he could learn one piece exactly in this way, almost entirely away from the piano, studying from the form down to the details, instead of beginning to learn the piece by first listening to the playing of it, a method which he declared was never safe. The lessons were often full of odd surprises for the assistant. The language was a hindrance, Americans being especially handicapped in this regard, and even if one spoke German and French fairly well, the exact value of Leschetizky's words was often lost. Naturally, very few spoke Leszczycki's own language, Russian or Polish, and consequently German and French were most commonly used in the lessons. He himself spoke admirable French, which, however, he declared he had learned mostly in foreign countries, as he had never spent much time in France. He knew Italian fairly well, but very little English. He was an excellent Latin scholar, and with him it was decidedly a point in one's favour, if the pupil, whether man or woman, knew Latin. He was once heard to recommend to a young English girl to take the advice of her Ruskin, who believed that every young lady should know the letters of the Greek alphabet. Leshetitsky has been described as moody, but he was not considered so by pupils who had known him best and longest. It is true that he was very susceptible to the atmosphere created around him, and was, in the lessons, as elsewhere, under the sway of varying emotions, much as an audience at a theatre is under the domination of the stage, and he allowed his intuitions to guide him. In the lessons, he rarely refrained from expressing himself with the utmost frankness and honesty according to his impressions once he had consented to give a lesson he gave his whole mind to it consequently the assistant profited as much as the pupil by these first lessons often there were embarrassing moments as when the pupil was criticized for something which was perhaps the result of an oversight on the part of the assistant. Every assistant, I think, dreaded the interruption of Leschetizky's flow of ideas by some trivial matter not at all worthy of the high standard he had set for himself in these lessons. A strange addition disturbed him. What he called artificial fingerings made him nervous. The position of the hand and the fingering should be different for each pupil he often remonstrated or scolded, of course the fingering that's written there you wouldn't use. That is written by a man who is no pianist. But whatever makes you spend time looking out such absurd fingerings. Why not be simple and take the fingers that lie most naturally over the keys? Your fingering has no connection with the shape of the group of notes you have to play or with the size of your hand either you mustn't copy your assistant's hand or mine either. That was the time for the assistant to exonerate himself if he could. Leschetizky would then go to his piano and analyze and dissect and put together a difficult passage with a view to adapting it to the hand of the pupil, and it was to be hoped that both assistant and pupil could fairly follow his method of procedure, until he had made a finished product, or one that was at least ready at that moment for a public performance. And then he would tell you that the mastery of this difficult passage which he had selected was not at all a question of practicing. It all depended upon the understanding of it, and the ability to see it plainly, of making a picture of it in the mind's eye. After playing every note so slowly that one could memorize every detail and listen to the vibration of every tone, he expected the whole passage to move more rapidly the next time. The third time, he expected you to play in tempo, and he considered that it all should go easily in tempo if you had understood his method of learning it. At an unsuccessful fourth attempt, he would generally look the player in the face and take a new and ominous estimate of his talent and ability. Whenever a pupil brought him a new composition and was unable to play some of the difficult passages, Leschetizky took time to learn these passages himself then and there. With a difficult piece, he would sometimes spend the whole lesson hour in learning every detail, the form he remembered at first reading, or by even glancing at the pages. His first glance would be at the length of the piece, and he had the number of bars at once in his memory. The pupil sat by, usually amazed at this process, and at his ability to make all the difficulties seem easy but he considered it quite simple. As to method in teaching, he thought there had always been a deplorable tendency to found systems and methods upon one point of technique. How he himself had suffered from that tendency. People came to him who could only stay a year or two, and the haste to learn everything in so short a time resulted in peculiarities and affectations as well as in the hardest and most inartistic manner of playing, a style that Leschetizky abhorred. He used to remark sadly to these frantic pupils, Yes, I see, time is money. Often a word dropped by him when it applied only to some special point became the basis for a method by those students who tried to crowd five years' study into one. There was the case of a young woman who had studied with one of these ambitious and feverish pupils. She already had the method, she said, and incidentally, she had neuritis in her arm. Her teacher had taught her that it was Leschetizky's method to press the fingers on the keys until the nails separated from the flesh, declaring that Leschetizky had used the expression, "'Press until the blood runs.'" What probably happened was that he actually said this to a pupil with flabby fingers that never reached the bottom of the keys. One can imagine the pupil asking if he should press, and Leschetizky's bored and impatient answer, yes, yes, press until the blood runs. This teacher had been truly honest in her desire to learn everything in one year. She appeared in Vienna one winter, a tall, middle-aged woman. "'doubtless with her return ticket in her pocket. "'She had a fever for learning, "'but probably in so short a time learned very little. "'People who had been heard by Leschetizky "'only once or twice often begged for recommendations. "'Whenever it was possible to give them, he did so. "'Nevertheless, he was cautious. "'On one occasion when a pupil was departing "'and a friend interceded in her behalf,' Leszczycki was unable to connect any playing with the name. "'Bring her out,' he said, and let me see her hand.' When she came, a glance at her hand reassured him. She had played well in the few lessons she had had with him, and the desired credential was given her. It was an astonishing fact that Leszczycki could remember every hand he had ever observed at the piano hands were like pictures to him and of paramount importance he might forget faces but hands never after years he was able to recognize a hand and remembered the pieces that had been played by it leshitsky had many annoying experiences with students calling themselves his pupils after studying only with assistants Once at my own house, he met one of these would-be pupils who told him she was preparing for him. He graciously asked her to play, which she did. Afterward, she exclaimed joyfully to me, Now I can call myself a Leschetizky pupil. It was always a mystery to him how some of the hands in the class became lame and strained, as he was unconscious of the foolish practices in vogue among the students. He constantly cautioned against any stretching or pulling of the hand, and it was never his idea to practice with paper wads or a key pulled up between the fingers. He did not advocate doing unnatural things with the hands or trying to develop a style that was unnatural. Sometimes a pretty girl had to make two heroic attempts to play her pieces, and Leschetizky would stop her with this advice— That piece is not becoming to you. A woman should never fight the keys, particularly if she is good-looking. It was a grief to him that Paula Shalit, one of his greatest pupils, did not follow his advice more closely in her selection of pieces, but insisted upon playing heavy pieces for which he thought her small hands unfitted. As an example of taste in repertoire, He would often refer to that charming artist, Clotilde Kleberg, a great favourite of the continent who never attempted anything that her particular style did not allow her to play well. It appalled him to think that anyone should strain a hand in studying technique as Paula Shalit did from time to time. Hands, he said, could be injured away from the piano and through carelessness too and in this connection he spoke of Catherine Goodson's unfortunate experience during her last winter in Vienna. One evening, after playing, with her hands warm with the exercise, she had gone to an open window where they became chilled in the cool air. A rheumatic condition of the muscles set in, and she had to spend the rest of the season trying to rid herself of it he continually cautioned against technical exercises the last thing at night. Far better, he thought it was, to play pieces with a variety of technique and touch. Nevertheless, the study of that part of technique not natural to one was something upon which he insisted, and how such practice could be used to the advantage of one's health was a pet whim of his. I had the theory applied to my own case— Once, on the way back to Vienna, I had been obliged to remain several weeks in a rest cure on account of a cough. When I came again to Leschetizky, he wanted me to see his own doctor in Vienna. All chord and octave playing, the doctor firmly forbade, to Leschetizky's excitement and disgust. The master claimed that he had once cured a girl of consumption by the practice of octaves and chords countermanding the physician's orders, he advised the same cure for my cough. His instructions were that my piano should be moved to the window, and I, warmly dressed, should sit very low, or preferably kneel before it, breathe deeply, and, reaching up, practice heavy chords and octaves until I was tired. My octaves profited, and the cough did actually disappear. One evening, as Leshetitsky was dining, an American lady was announced, who said she had studied with him twenty years before. At first, he was not disposed to see her, but when she sent in the usual persuasive message that she had crossed the ocean to see him, he laughingly consented to receive her. Twenty years was a rather long time he remarked as he left the table, and he said he did not know what he could do for a person after so long an interval, if she was not even talented enough for him to remember. When he returned, he inquired of me, "'Don't Americans always tell the truth? I don't believe she ever studied with me, for I cannot remember her hand.' All the time I could see that he was puzzled and moody over his inability to recall her hand." He was convinced that he had never seen it before. However, he told her to come and play for him. Before the day appointed for the hearing, some malevolent person in the class informed leshchetitsky that the lady had been advertising herself in certain Western newspapers as "'A teacher of the leshchetitsky method in Twelve Lessons.' a number of trying experiences with recommendations and demands had thoroughly tried Leszczycki's patience. Leszczycki's method in twelve lessons infuriated him and induced him to make an example of this teacher who represented herself as a former pupil. On the day she was to play for him, the assistants were all invited to be present. We sat there around the piano when she came into the room. She entered tremblingly, but even in that tense and ominous atmosphere, she kept up her pluck and went directly to the piano. I think I was so utterly confused and embarrassed by the situation that she played the Bach A minor, Prelude and Fugue. Leschetizky listened in silence, always a terrible omen. If he was interested, he never allowed faults to pass unnoticed. When she had finished, he addressed the assistants. Do you see any of my ideas in this playing? No one could speak. He then turned directly to me. This is a fellow countrywoman of yours. Just the same, you have got to tell the truth. Is there anything good about it? AND YOU ARE THE ONE WHO HAS ADVERTISED HERSELF AS A TEACHER OF MY METHOD IN TWELVE LESSONS? HE SAID TO HER. IS THAT SO? SHE COULD ONLY ADMIT IT, AND FAIRLY ANNIHILATED, SHE LEFT THE ROOM. ABOUT A WEEK LATER, THIS UNDOUBTEDLY WELL-MEANING WOMAN SENT FOR ME. I HAD BEEN THE ONLY AMERICAN THERE, AND BECAUSE MY FACE EXPRESSED SYMPATHY WITH HER, SHE WISHED TO TELL ME THE TRUTH. Since that miserable day of the hearing, the San Francisco earthquake had occurred, and only that morning she had received a cablegram from her father, saying that everything she possessed had been destroyed. She said she wished to make a confession. Twenty years before, she had been in Vienna, preparing for Leschetizky. At last she was ready to play for him, and a lesson was arranged just the day before she was to leave. There were several pupils ahead of her and late in the afternoon he sent out word that he could not give any more lessons that day so she had to go back to America without playing for him even once. He was right. He had never seen her hand. At home something had been expected of her and she had stretched a point to call herself a Leschetizky pupil. I took this story at once to Leschetizky "'It distressed him, but he could not forgive her sufficiently to see her again. "'Of course I have taken away her income,' he reflected, "'and now there is this terrible disaster on top of it. "'I can at least send her some money,' he said, "'but as for hearing her again at the piano, no, I can never do that.' "'Such instances were annoying enough.' but not so trying to him as the rarer experience of finding disloyalty in a real pupil who, through egotism, had set himself in opposition to the master's methods. There was one who thought Leschetizky's way too long and arduous, and set out to discover for himself some shortcut to fame. His method was based upon the theory that in the past pianists had studied too much, "'It was not at all necessary to bother with theory "'or to learn anything except the actual pieces one intended to play. "'What is the use of being a good musician?' he asked. "'When you come before your audience, "'no one cares what you know if you play well. "'Pieces could be learned from hearing another play them, "'as a parrot learns to speak. "'There must be a method in everything,' he contended, "'and he had a method that would never fail.' Upon these principles, he established himself in another city and boasted when he left that he would send a pupil back to Vienna to play that would excel any pupil that Leshchetitsky had ever had. Someone remarked to him that if he did, Leshchetitsky would be the first to recognize it. If there had been reason in the method of this pupil, Leshchetitsky would indeed have been the first to listen to him. He was eager for new ideas the reason, perhaps, he was so tolerant of all who asked to play for him. Now that I had shown myself capable of teaching, Leshetitsky was very serious about having me go to Ischel in the summer to study with him how to teach. Up to this time I had heard very little about technique from him, and it was only from studying with him how to train different hands that I heard his views about technique. Initial, not a day passed that we did not take up some point of technique, for whenever anyone came there to play for him with the hope of studying, he would send his servant up the hill for me. While the prospective pupil played, I stood by. Afterward, he would ask me what I thought of the hand. He would take up the question of the thumb of one hand, for instance. This thumb was a little longer than usual. What would be the position, then, of the hand on the keyboard? Another hand was heavy. He instructed me how to give it flexibility and lightness. And these points he liked to discuss. I often recalled that first experience of mine in the beginning of my own study, when I had tried to copy hand position and fingering from a friend who was studying the same piece, and how Leschetizky went over every technical detail in a different way with us. He advised me now to dispense with all rules for wrist motion. There is no method for the wrist, he said, except to get the easiest way to the next note. And in the years since I have tried to keep in mind the exact meaning of his words. Books could be written about the motions of the wrist, he said. And, although it often required considerable knowledge to cope with an individual hand, in general it was better to let the shape and size of it determine the action of the wrist. Anyway, you can get your softest as well as your strongest tones from the arm with a firm wrist, he went on. So in any problem of finger or wrist or arm, it is better to reckon with physical characteristics and be guided by good judgment. I can tell you, he said, that I am today a much better teacher than I was ten years ago. One learns from every new pupil, the untalented as well as the talented. Sometimes the pupil who seems stupid in the beginning becomes an interesting student under good training. Often the talented ones find many simple things difficult, so every day I learn something new. Don't have a method, he said to me. It is far better to leave your mind a blank for the pupil to fill in. You will discover more easily in this way what he needs. Even in technique, it is impossible to have a method, for every hand is different. I have no method, and I will have no method. Go to concerts, and be sharp-witted, and if you are observing, you will learn tremendously from the ways that are successful and also from those that are not. Adopt with your pupils the ways that succeed with them, and get away as far as possible from the idea of a method. Write over your music room door the motto, No Method!